Father, we ask that you would stir up your power with great might come upon us, and as we are surely hindered by our sins from running the race that is before us, we pray that your bountiful grace and mercy would speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, both now and forever. Amen. All right. Um, so we are in uh, Miketch. Uh, we might have a few more people join us. It is the holiday season. I'm sure quite a number of people are traveling this week. Um, so it's interesting that uh, we have um, the passage is Miketch, which is kind of uh, the end of things. Ketch uh, is also a kite. He's also a phrase for summer. So maybe for our Southern Hemisphere people, it's more appropriate than the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but uh, it's starting in Genesis chapter 41 and going through Genesis chapter 44. And then we'll be looking specifically at the half Torah, which is 1 Kings chapter 3 and chapter 4. Um, specifically 1 Kings 3.15 through 4.1, but I might uh, deviate on either side of that slightly uh, just because of the the... Um, the way that Genesis and First Kings match so perfectly in this particular case. So Genesis uh, 41 through 44 is the story of Joseph. Um, and it's called Miketch because this is actually the end of Joseph's troubles, if you will and the beginning of his rise to power. So throughout Joseph's life, he had difficulty after difficulty. Um, obviously his mother dies. Um, his brothers don't like him. You have um, him uh, thrown into a pit after being almost murdered by his brothers. Um, and then he's sold into slavery. He um, rises to the top each place he goes, and yet he's constantly thrown back down into the pits, uh, in some cases quite literally, um, where he's thrown into prison because of something that he did not do. <clears throat> then you have um, at the uh, his time with Potiphar, he's thrown into prison, he interprets a couple dreams, and then at the end of that period, two years later, uh, and this is where the, the phrase comes from, at the end of two years. So he's in prison for two years. The pharaoh, or we'll call him the king, since pharaoh isn't a title yet uh, until the time of Solomon, which will be actually entering in 1 Kings 3, the period of Solomon. The king of Egypt has a dream, and he looks around all of Egypt, and he asks if anyone can interpret his dream. No one can, um, except one person remembers that, oh, wait, there was somebody who could actually interpret dreams. Um, and so the cupbearer, in this case, he 
comes before Pharaoh. He tells him that Joseph is a person who can interpret dreams. Joseph is tested. The Pharaoh doesn't even tell him his dream. Um, in the end, Joseph becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. Uh, he gathers up the food. He uh, is very careful with what he does. He creates storehouses. Um, he commands that I believe it's a tenth of all the food should be uh, put away for future use um, from all of the cities in Egypt. Of course, Egypt is incredibly well known for its grain production. And in the end, the whole world goes into a famine and all the world has to come to Egypt, or at least all the world, that part of the world, had to come to Egypt to buy grain. And this would include Joseph's family, who are still staying in Canaan. And Joseph's family, they come there. Uh, they don't recognize Joseph. They buy food. They're tested several times by Joseph over and over and over. Um, in various ways, he accuses them of stealing. Uh, he accuses them of being spies. He um, gives them a test of, well, if you're not a spy, then prove it by bringing um, your youngest brother along, all of these different tests. And finally, at the end of that, um, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and eventually, uh, next week, we will have the story of how um, Israel and all of the people of Israel, the brothers and their families and their household, of which, of course, many of them are, in fact, not Jewish, or at least they wouldn't have been when they married into the family or were became the servants of, of Israel, Many of these families, they moved with Israel and with the sons to Egypt, where they ended up staying for hundreds of years. Um, and, of course, Joseph becomes very rich, which we'll come to later on in a comparison between Joseph and Solomon. So I'm going to go ahead and read the parasha now. I'm going to start in... Um, verse 15, as I'm supposed to, and then hopefully I'll go back to verse 1 of 1 King chapter 3, uh, because there's a lot in there that actually builds on this comparison between Solomon and Joseph. Uh, so 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 15, I'll be reading from the ESV. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. 
And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they both spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my child that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because your heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, Shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide them. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. And by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. King Solomon was king over all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Obviously, we find some very clear uh, correlations between Solomon and Joseph immediately. Um, we discover that Joseph had a penchant for dreams, starting from a young child or middle-aged child, whatever. We don't know his full age, I don't think. Um, but from uh, his pre-adulthood, shall we say, uh, all the way through until the time that he was um, fully probably even middle-aged by this point, um, thanks to the years that he spent as a slave and servant and in jail. And um, I think it 22 years is what I read earlier, 22 years from the time, according to one rabbi, from the time that Joseph uh, had his dream of his brothers bowing down before him until the day that they actually do. Um, so it's, it's quite a long period of time. Um, and uh, as we pointed out uh, this last week, Aaron and I were talking and uh, talking about how often in the Christian world today we pray something. When is it going to happen? When is, gonna, when is God going to do this thing? When is this person going to be healed or when am I going to get the job I want or why isn't my boss fired yet? Um, <laughs> and we just assume that it will happen immediately. Um, Joseph had to wait 22 years for his dream to come true. 
um, and you find even much longer periods of history for others, um, 40 years, 80 years. Um, you know, you have the stories of, of Abraham and Sarah who had to wait for their child. You have the story of um, Elizabeth and Zechariah who had to wait for their child. You have the story of Simeon and Anna who were in the temple and they waited for the deliverance of the Lord until they were well advanced in age. Um, and sometimes you have to wait. Um, but anyways, uh, you have this very clear correlation between Solomon and Joseph, where they both have a dream. Now, oddly enough, uh, the parasha um, half Torah for this week doesn't actually include the dream, which um, I'm going to jump into chapter 3, verse 1 quickly. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house, the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. There's another correlation here in that both Solomon and Joseph were given a wife by uh, Pharaoh or king of Egypt. Um, Solomon was given the daughter of the Pharaoh, while Joseph was given the daughter of Potiphar for his wife by the Pharaoh. Uh, so you have this correlation. And one of the most interesting things about 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, is that Solomon marries for an alliance. He marries an Egyptian. And then, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high place, right? Verse 2, it says that the temple hadn't been built yet, so um, they're offering in not the temple. Um, and then he goes to Gibeon. Uh, he is going to offer a sacrifice there. Again, um, we, of course, know today that the place that Israel was supposed to offer sacrifices is, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. But it doesn't actually say that in Deuteronomy. It just says that the Lord will show them a place or that they are to find the place where they are to offer sacrifices to God. And in fact, where is the tabernacle set up? Shiloh which is obviously not Jerusalem. Um, it's in the uh, hill country of Ephraim, or Joseph, if you will. Um, it's only in Psalms uh, that you actually find out for sure that Jerusalem is the place that God chose, the place that he mentioned in Deuteronomy uh, that he would choose. Uh, and in fact, uh, in some traditions, you might even argue that 
it didn't have to be Jerusalem. Um, now, of course, with the tradition, with the history, we can look back at the stories that transpassed uh, earlier and we can say, well, it makes sense that it was Jerusalem. But you could have probably also done that with uh, the area around Beersheba. You could have probably also done that around the area of um, the Benjamin Plateau, which is Gibeon, which is where Solomon is going, right? You have Beit El, um, which some people will argue is uh, the Temple Mount, but most people will place it near Gibeon, uh, Gibeon, which is in the Benjamin Plateau. Um, and eventually, of course, God says, no, it's going to be Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the place where I choose to place my name. But for now, Solomon is going to Gibeon, verse 4 of chapter 3, to offer sacrifice. And it says that he offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, in fact, we find um, in Haggai chapter 2 that the comparison between what Solomon could do and what the people returning from exile could do was really incomparable. They didn't compare at all. Neither the sacrifice he offered nor the building that we created and made and built. Um, but Solomon offered many offerings to God and then he goes to sleep and the Lord appears to Solomon. So Solomon has married a foreign wife for an alliance. He's offering sacrifices in a place that's not Jerusalem. And what does God do? He appears to him. But he doesn't accuse Solomon of anything. There's no issue, there's no problem that God is having with Solomon. In fact, God seems to be very pleased with Solomon. And Solomon loved the Lord. He walked in the statutes of David, his father. Um, so often we uh, read about Solomon and his many wives were like, well, it's because of his many wives that Solomon walked away from God. Well, in this particular case, Solomon marries a foreign wife for an alliance, and God is fine with it. It's not that he married one foreign wife for an alliance. It's that he married many women whom he loved seemingly more than God, and they turned his heart away, which is an interesting turn of phrase in that, obviously, in the end, it was Solomon's choice. Solomon isn't sitting there going, no, 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 I want to serve God, let me serve God, please let me serve God, as these women are tearing him away from God. Um, he also is having, it's his choice if he follows God or if he follows uh people uh, who are serving other gods. In fact, people that he's not supposed to be with. He can marry a, uh, you know, a princess or whatever. Sure, there's no problem with that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, really none of the Israelites married other Israelites. They married foreign wives. They brought in foreign servants who became part 
of Israel, right? Um, eventually, it doesn't say, "Oh, all of the people that went to Egypt with with Jacob, who were Canaanite, who were foreigners, well, they didn't become part of Israel. No, they they became they they together um, proliferated and became a nation within the nation of of, of Egypt." Um, so that's not a problem. Uh, as long as you continue to love God, continue to walk in God's statutes. Um, and you, of course, uh, Joseph, right? Uh, Joseph marries an Egyptian. And there's no problem with that. You have Ephraim and Manasseh who are um, blessed more than any other tribe with the exception of Judah. And in fact, in many ways, they're even more blessed than Judah. The only reason why we really say Judah is blessed more is because the Messiah was coming from Judah. If you're looking at land, if you're looking at wealth, if you're looking at um, the, the many uh, blessings that they had, Ephraim and Manasseh had pretty much we're on par with Judah. So God comes to Solomon in a dream. He, We know probably the story. What do you want? What shall I give you? Solomon asks for wisdom. And God is pleased with this answer. God gives Solomon wisdom. But he also gives him um, long life and riches in addition to it. Um. Solomon ends up reigning from the time he was probably around 12 or 13, uh, and he reigns for 40 years, which might not seem like super long life to us, uh, but it was probably quite a bit longer than the majority of the people in the world at that time. Um, so Solomon reigned for, for quite a long, long time. Um and then we come to the passage that we're in. Solomon wakes up, and it's a dream. Of course, this is why this Haftarah is, is picked, along with uh, the, the matching of it with, with Joseph. But as you can see, that there are many parallels even before you get to verse 15. But of course, these parallels, they're, they're not actually, they're almost a bit superficial. You can probably find something that's similar among different people. Um, I can probably find someone in um, Senegal um, or Cameroon, since they're having the um, African Cup there. Uh, right. I can probably find someone there and and talk to them and find several things that are very similar between them and myself. For instance, uh, they want to watch the uh, African Cup of Nations or whatever um, shortly in January. Uh, you can find these parallels. And dreams, obviously, the interpretation of dreams, the knowledge that these dreams are important. Um, is fascinating and interesting, and it actually end up being incredibly important in both Joseph and Solomon's lives. 
uh, the fact that they married um, high officials' daughters from Egypt. Um, obviously, this is very important in their life. Uh, anyone who's married, I'm sure, recognizes that a wife is pretty important uh, in your life. Um, but we come to this passage that is the actual um, half Torah. And that is the story of these two women who come to Solomon and plead for him to judge between them. So who are these two women? Um, now, my translation says that there are two prostitutes, um, which they might have been. Um, two, two young women who uh, don't seem to have a husband, um, who don't have anything outside of their newborn children. And you have the story, and they come before Solomon. One says, this is my son. The other one is, is their son. And um, unfortunately, uh, one of the children dies. And someone asked me earlier, it seems rather callous that uh, one of the women uh, didn't really, in the end, when you have this judgment of Solomon and uh, his answer is to kill the second child as well. One of the women seems very callous. And somebody mentioned how that seemed wrong to them. How could someone be that callous? But in fact, um, right from the beginning, you read that the reason the son, the, the son died, the child died, was because the woman lay on him. So, you know, you maybe put him down uh, next to you to sleep. Maybe it was cold outside, who knows. Uh, but you lay the child down. It's very young. And um, you, she accidentally uh, probably lay on him, maybe suffocated him, something like that. Um it does seem to be a an accident, but nonetheless, the care that we required wasn't taken, right? If you have a child, um, especially at that age, you're going to take certain actions to make sure that the child is safe. Um, and one of them does not seem to do that whatsoever. Uh, it reminds me of the story of um, the commandment that you're supposed to build a parapet around your house. Because even though you might not intend for someone to fall off the parapet, right, fall off the roof of your house, if you don't build a fence around it, then you are still guilty of, of um, not having prepared for the situation. Um, and that's what this woman, uh, possibly a young prostitute, perhaps, um, you know, not used to having children 
who are still alive. Uh, obviously, many prostitutes uh, do commit abortion even in those days. Um, ch children were not conducive to the prostitution trade. Um, and the child is now dead. But the second woman is devastated. She seems to really want to keep her child. Which again, if she's a prostitute, is actually bad for her trade. It's something that would be very detrimental to her if you're talking about economics or if you're talking about just ease of life. So she goes out of her way. She drags them both to court, not just any court, but she drags them both to the king's court uh, with the child. And in the end, she wants her child to live. Uh, she also uh, can note very quickly that the child that had died was not hers. Um, and again, attention to detail. She, she paid attention to her child. She knew how it acted, how it reacted um, when it was feeding, when, when the sun was lying, what, you know, the hair, the whatever it might have been um, that, that gave away that the child that died was not hers. And we come to Solomon's answer. And this is a matter of judgment. Um, the wisdom to rule, which you'll see both in the story of Joseph and the story of Solomon. They had the wisdom on how to rule, how to command things, how to make things work, uh, which we'll come to shortly. What does the king do? Well, you have two opposing arguments. And there are only two witnesses. And they're both saying opposite things. So what do you do if you have two witnesses and they're saying different things? Well, you can't really do anything. There's no way to know who is lying and who is telling the truth. You just have one person saying one thing and the other person saying the opposite. That's it. And so Solomon says, well, I can't, I can't judge on this matter. It's impossible for me to judge on the matter. So what we're going to do instead is just kill the baby. You get half. You get half. We're done. Right? Uh, the king's uh, judgment table, uh, the court of the king, I'm sure he had many things to do in his life, rendering a judgment on two prostitutes isn't really high on his agenda. So he gives you very curt um, judgment, which I'm sure many people were probably a little bit skeptical of in the court, although I'm sure there are probably other people in the court who are like, yeah, seems fair. Uh, 
very different time period. <laughs> uh, the, the early Iron Age type of a period. And um, there were probably people who were like, yeah, okay, that's your fair judgment. Uh, life, interestingly enough, it's Judaism and Christianity that give such a high priority on life. Um, you go to any country that um, has had a Christian or Judaical worldview put into it, and those countries do invariably uh, have a better way of life. More people who live and um, live well because people care about life. Um, unfortunately, uh, sometimes that disappears. We can't just assume that because people cared about life 20 years ago means that they care about life today. Um, and in fact, you could even go back quite a bit farther than 20 years ago. Um, abortion, which I am heartily opposed to, I will put that out there to anyone who disagrees with me. Uh, I would much prefer to argue for life than for um, anything else. Uh, in fact, one of the um, Jewish beliefs is that you can actually break the law um, in order to save a life outside of, of course, idolatry. Um, adultery, I think it is. Idolatry, adultery, and of course, murder. Because if you're murdering to save a life, you're not really saving life. Um, so Solomon gives this judgment. Cut the child in half. And the woman who actually cared, and it's pretty obvious, again, one of these women cares because they came to the king's judgment. It's difficult. It's an effort. It is, uh, it's not something that just happens. You don't walk in front of a king and go, um, excuse me, I would like you to make a judgment for me because I am important, right? The woman cared enough to go through probably um, clerks and people who said, no, your case isn't important. Go away, find a lesser judge. There are judges around Jerusalem. There are judges in your town, wherever you might live, who cares, go away. And she persisted and came to the king. And so Solomon I imagine, knew that this woman cared about what happened to the child. He's not asking for sure than being like, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the child. Give half to one, half to the other. Oh, you're going to speak up? Oh, well, I guess I'll give the child to one of you. Uh, I think he probably understood that the woman who cared would speak up. And that's what she does. Uh, the woman whose son was alive said to the king, 
because your heart yearned for her son. O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. Now, interestingly enough, I think this would work either way. Even if this wasn't the actual mother, <laughs> even if the mother accidentally killed her own child um, and then tried to steal the other woman's child, at least she cared enough to speak up. Now, it happens that she was the mother of the child. Um, and Solomon understood that and immediately said, give the living child, right? He doesn't kill the child. He's waiting for someone to speak up. He calls for a sword to be brought from elsewhere. Uh, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. And people are astounded immediately with the wisdom that Solomon had to rule and to rule with both wisdom and act injustice. And the final verse of the half Torah is Solomon was king over all Israel. Uh, now there are arguments, of course, of what Israel was in the time of Solomon. Uh, if people tell you that Israel is uh, in the time of Solomon went all the way up to Acadia and to the Euphrates River, uh, it says specifically that Solomon ruled over Dan to Beersheba. That's it. Uh, now he had conquered or subjugated or made alliances with the kingdom of Hamat. Um, which did, in fact, go all the way to Euphrates. So he had influence, um, both on the trade route, on the economy, even militarily, all the way up to the north. Um, but the actual land of Israel was simply what it always had been, Dan to Beersheba. And then actually, eventually, he expands to Elat, which isn't also part of Israel, uh, at least not um, in this context. Just uh, sometimes we, we try to expand things to make everything as good as possible for Israel, um, which I understand, but let's at least try and look at, at what the text says. I do want to go over one other thing before um, I open up for questions or comments or disagreements. The chapter four is in a lot of ways one of the most interesting chapters on Solomon. If you care about governance and uh, geography, which I do, um, in it, Solomon makes wise choices. He divides Israel up. He puts governors and um, high officials into 12 slash 13 different areas, uh, 12 different areas, plus one high official in Judah. Um, and he has them provide um, provisions each 
place gives provisions once a month, or I should say each place gives it once a year, uh, provisions to the capital. Um, uh, he divides up the land. They, of course, this is one of the ways that he's going to uh, do his taxes. Um, verse 21, again, it says that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. Um, the rule that he had wasn't one of land ownership. It was one of alliance or intimidation, depending on the, the location. Um, and, of course, later on, we also see that same phrase, he ruled from Dan to Beersheba. Um, we also know in chapter 9 of 1 Kings that even within the land of Solomon, right, the Shvelah, which is the Judean foothills, the pharaoh of Egypt had to come in, conquer Gezer, which is should be part of the land of, of Solomon already. He conquers Gezer and then gives Gezer to uh, his daughter as a gift for Solomon and his daughter. Um, so again, what they actually ruled was more of a uh, economic, political uh thing, not necessarily land. Um, but Solomon does um, rule. If you read through chapter 4, it's about very political issues. How to govern the land. And you see the same thing with Joseph, um, in particular next week, although it starts this week um, in the Miketz uh, parasha, where Joseph intentionally goes throughout all the land to each city and tells them how much they have to give, how much they have to store, where they have to do it, um, that it has to be given to the king, uh, all of these different things. And then later on, actually, in chapter 48, when the people of Egypt want to buy grain, um, I heard a, a sermon once where the pastor was talking about how great uh, Joseph and was and how he was an amazing person, which traditionally he is actually the uh, best of the patriarchs. Um, even though he's not one of the ones promised uh, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. But if you read the story, he seems to be the greatest of the patriarchs. But he was not democratic or republican or, or uh, Marxist or anything like that. He went throughout the land and he said, you want food? Well, I took 14 years of my life to make sure that you have food. And now if you want more food, you have to sell me your land. And that's how you can buy food. Um, 
Joseph was in fact very shrewd in how he governed. Um, we might today say that how how dare he take advantage of the people like that? Um, but he was shrewd in what he did. He practiced um, carefully. Uh, I don't even know how to put it in our modern terminology because we're so against it just from a fundamental mindset. Um, he prepared. No one else did. And when the time came to capitalize on it, he did. Uh, and here you see Solomon um, again going through and, and figuring out how he can rule with wisdom and how he can rule so that people of Israel, of Judah, um, he has 12 different provinces here uh, that he divides up the land again, plus Judah, which in the end don't even have to give a portion. Um because the other 12 portions, which aren't actually by tribe, it's by land area, um, they provide. So you might even see, I think, uh, Solomon sets up um, Jeroboam is one of the provincial leaders, and that backfires eventually. Uh, sometimes ruling with wisdom in the moment, what seems smartest in the moment Will backfire if, if you don't have some kind of mercy or justice also. Um, and so, in fact, the majority of Israel ends up rebelling against his son when his son says, you know how my dad made you all pay taxes? Once, once a year, each province had to pay taxes. Well, I'm going to make it much worse. Um but yeah, these are some of the, the similarities are, um, again, you have the dreams, you have the alliance with Egypt and the marriages, which God has no problem with, uh, and you have the wisdom to rule. And I think sometimes we're afraid to rule with justice. We're so intent on, oh, democracy is the best way of governance. It may be. Uh, Aaron would obviously agree, or disagree, I should say, being a good monarchist. Um, um, yeah, maybe democracy is the best way to rule. Maybe uh, you know, a republic is the best. Maybe whatever, meritocracy, whatever it might be that you personally believe in. Maybe monarchy, maybe authoritarian, uh, which in fact actually sometimes works better than any other rule, um, which you saw in the life of, of Joseph, right? He was authoritarian, period. Um, but it worked. People lived because of what he did. People who would have died if he had not been authoritarian. Um, but sometimes it is good to recognize that we should be shrewd with how we act um now it doesn't mean that if people disagree with us or that no one speaks up that we should end up actually killing the child and dividing it and giving half to one and half to the other 
I'm definitely not saying that, um, but to think it through and recognize that, okay, well, if people are taking this much effort, they care about something. So how can I be shrewd in how I enter into what I'm supposed to do, whether it's in judging, whether it's in business, whether it is in um, politics, economics, religion, um, our family, right? Uh, it's, it's not bad to be shrewd as long as we're also loving God, loving our neighbor, and wanting to worship and serve him. And sometimes that shrewdness that we have backfires because we forget the form, the, the most important part, which is, you know, the, the entrance to um, uh, the story, which is Sam, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father. That's the opening to the story. First Kings 3, verse 3. Um, I'm not entirely sure why they uh, have it as verse 3. But uh, verses 1 and 2 are also obviously important, I suppose, to the story. But if you're shrewd without loving the Lord and walking in, the, in, in God's statutes, then things will go poorly with you. You will end up like Rehoboam instead of like Solomon. Um, and that will unfortunately be bad. Or you'll end up like Solomon towards the end of his life when he cared more about the woman who he loved, the women of Ammon, Moab, Edom, uh, the women of um, the Hittites, um, Aram, like Damascus area, the Neo-Hittites uh, to the north. Um, he made all of these alliances, but he did it not because he needed an alliance, right? He had already married the most important person in that part of the world, right? He married the Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't need any other alliances. He married these people because he loved having women around. Um, uh, and it was obviously against the laws of the statutes of the Lord. So he actually ended up loving women more than the Lord, and he ended up not walking in the statutes of Deuteronomy, where it says, don't buy horses, don't buy chariots, and by the way, don't marry a whole bunch of women. <laughs> um, but still, I would say, don't let that scare us from being shrewd, which is, of course, also what Jesus says, as long as you're also um, not harming people. Uh, I'll stop there, because I'm starting to go around in the circle. Um, and see if anybody has any questions or comments or disagreements.